Hey, this is Sarah Thompson, and today we'll be mapping labor and delivery on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected. We are all unique and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Sarah Thompson. Sarah Thompson is a functional medicine practitioner who specializes in maternity care. She is the author of the book, Functional Maternity, Using Functional Medicine and Nutrition to Improve Pregnancy and Childbirth Outcomes, and one of the leading authorities on the use of functional medicine during pregnancy. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Hi. Thanks for having me. So I've had the opportunity, as I've shared with you, to speak about fertility, about ovulation, breastfeeding, and even miscarriage on the podcast, but we have actually not had the opportunity to dive into labor and delivery. So I'm eager to speak with you today, Sarah, and I'm wondering, when it comes to childbirth, can you just give us an overview of how we bring a functional medicine perspective to this part of care? So... One of the things that has really driven my purpose, my mission, my book, my practice is bringing the care of mothers back into the care of pregnancy. And something we have neglected as all sorts of practitioners, whether we're midwives, OBs, acupuncturists, chiropractors, functional medicine practitioners, is that we focus so much on prenatal care and not so much on the maternity care. And when it comes to childbirth, a lot of what we understand in pregnancy care doesn't apply because we really should be focusing on maternity care. And a lot of people don't know that a lot of the maternal physiological changes that happen in preparation for childbirth actually start happening at the tail end of the second trimester. We think of this prep for childbirth as like these last four weeks of pregnancy where there's a lot that happens in the maternal physiology that leads up to this grand functional experience. And if we neglect these functions, you can't change that in the last four weeks. And one of my goals and one of my purposes is to educate functional medicine practitioners, chiropractors, acupuncturists, midwives, anybody working with expectant patients on these unique physiological changes so that we can apply these great functional medicine ideologies to this physiology and really support 
these natural functions. Mm, I love that you're doing this work. It's so important. And, you know, there are things coming to my mind that are part of those earlier physiological changes. But I want to hear from you. What does maternal care look like in that end of the second trimester, moving into the third trimester? Even if we were to tick around the matrix, what are we thinking about? Yeah. So a lot of the things that we end up looking at are, you know, encompassing so many things, things from, you know, how the gut is functioning to things like oxidative stress, environmental toxins, all these things can play into a woman's ability to birth later on down the line. Some of the interesting things that we focus on a lot are things like adrenal function, thyroid function, obviously hormonal function. These are all very much connected as any functional medicine practitioner knows. But one of the things I joke is if you're working in pregnancy, take everything you know about functional medicine and throw it out the window. Because the maternal physiology changes so drastically and it changes so quickly throughout pregnancy that a lot of what we use outside of pregnancy for things like fertility and other hormonal issues doesn't apply. So I'll try to dive really quickly into kind of some of these little physiological changes and these processes that lead to that functional childbirth experience. So before 20 weeks, so before a woman even goes in for her, you know, anatomy scan to see if, you know, baby has all their fingers and toes and all the organs are present, the fetal adrenal glands are the size of kidneys. They're huge. And they produce excessive amounts of cortisol and DHEA primarily other things as well, but those are the ones we focus on a lot when we're looking at childbirth preparation. Throughout the course of pregnancy, there is a 500% increase in cortisol production. That's phenomenal. And that's probably why some women I've heard with lower adrenal function actually feel great during pregnancy because they're kind of borrowing that reserve, right? Exactly. Yeah, their baby is giving them the cortisol that they've struggled to make. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so it's kind of like, you know, a nice little support system. But what these hormones do is they start to prepare the cervix for labor and delivery starting at like 18 weeks. And there's an interesting thing that happens in the structure of the cervix starting that early. And what we see is it's the remodeling process. And cortisol helps to produce things like collagenase. We see that it changes the production of the type of collagen being produced in the cervix so that these fibers, that progesterone, when we had that big burst of progesterone in the first trimester, created collagen fibers that were really knotted, very nesting-like. It looks like a bird's nest when you look at it through a microscope. And one of cortisol's jobs is to change the structure of those fibers and to make them parallel in structure. If they're all knotted and bound up, you can't efface, you cannot open that cervix when childbirth happens many, many, many weeks down the line. So that's something that we look at when we're looking at that preparation for childbirth is a a lot of this prep is happening way, way back in that second trimester phase when the baby's adrenal glands are starting to get that excessive output of things like cortisol. Yeah, it's so amazing. I mean, one of the things I love about functional medicine that I think is often misinterpreted or incorrectly used is that physiology actually gives us our clues. That when we understand what should be happening in the body, that the science is less about evidence-based research than it is about the evidence of physiology and biology. There's so many clues there. And that's what I hear you speaking about. When we know this is happening, then what? How do we support that? So how do we support 
those processes so that they're most supportive for mama and baby or parent and baby, I should say. And that's really it. That's exactly it. That's what I always, you know, tell practitioners that I'm working with from a mentorship standpoint is we are supporting the natural physiology. Our goal is to hug that maternal physiology and let it do what it's supposed to do. And a lot of it is really the maternal responses to the fetal signals. And a lot of times mom is just along for the ride and we are doing things such as, you know, supporting her adrenal glands as best we can, checking things like progesterone levels to make sure that we have a balance. Progesterone increases significantly throughout pregnancy, and one of its things is to help stabilize that cervix during this transition so that we don't have things like early labor, right? Early ripening of the cervix, preterm labor, those sorts of things. We also see that that DHEA that the baby produces gets turned into the estrogen that we see elevating in pregnancy. And estrogen levels start to create prostaglandins in the cervix as well. And this combination of increased cortisol, increased prostaglandin starts to make that cervix softer, but it also starts to do things like increase the production of oxytocin on the inside of the uterus. And one of the big things that goes into the production of oxytocin is protein. The structure of oxytocin is a chain of nine amino acids. Two of those are essential amino acids, leucine and isoleucine. So we have to make sure moms are consuming enough protein in their diet because they're making this oxytocin that is then going to make the oxytocin receptors that they need for active labor many, many weeks down the line. And this gets really interesting. I really love like the third trimester prep for childbirth because there's so many connected things happening to prepare that uterus for the big event. As we see these different changes happening in the cervix, this is going to signal the body to make the oxytocin receptors that this person's going to use for active labor several weeks down the line. Now, in order to make these receptors, we need several things to function correctly in the body. One of the big ones is the thyroid. Thyroid hormones are very important for the production of oxytocin receptors on the outside of the uterus. We have to have estrogen. We have to have retinoic acid, which is a form of vitamin A. We have to have magnesium. We have to have a nice little cholesterol we need in this process to make these receptors. And it's interesting that we see that low thyroid function in the third trimester is associated with more labor and delivery complications. And the theory goes that a part of the reason is that we don't see the production of oxytocin receptors as efficiently when we are hypothyroid. That's one of the reasons. And when we think of hypothyroidism, you know, there's a lot of controversy over what that TSH range is, what we should test, what we shouldn't test. And again, in pregnancy, everything changes. And the Endocrine Society and a couple of other really prominent organizations are really pushing to lower the TSH reference range for the third trimester to 0.2 to 2.5. Because they see that women who have TSH ranges in that 2.5 and above range in the third trimester are more likely to have increased complications in labor and delivery, which include things like a later gestational timeframe, meaning they go past their due dates more often. They need augmentation to get their labors started more often than not. We also see that they have longer labors. And we also see that they have a higher rate of postpartum hemorrhaging, which, if you didn't know, has doubled since the 1990s. Wow. And why is that? Is that connected, would you say, to our evolving uh, societal (laughs) thyroid function? Well, I think there's a lot of things that go into 
this increased risk of postpartum hemorrhaging. And nobody really knows why it's happening. And there's a lot of theories, but not a lot of really good evidence, a lot of correlations, but nothing definitive. One of those correlations is this subclinical hypothyroid pattern. And what's interesting is that you need T4 thyroid hormone in order to convert beta carotene into retinoic acid. And retinoic acid is the form of vitamin A that's used in the making of oxytocin receptors. So if we are lower in total and free T4 output, then what we see is less oxytocin receptors being formed. Fascinating. Totally makes sense. And it's so interesting because, you know, I gave birth over 21 years ago, (laughs) precursor to my Hashimoto's diagnosis, but tremendous triggers during pregnancy with my husband's brain tumor diagnosis. And what you're saying was all true for me. So I didn't know yet I had thyroid issues and I was working with midwives and I did have a home birth, but a lot of those things occurred for me before I even knew there was an issue with my thyroid. And that leads to my next question, which is how stress and triggers during these pivotal times of physiological change impact labor and delivery. Yeah. Well, we can see stress being a big trigger for everything from preterm labor to post-dates. And from a, you know, survival biological mindset, if you are in a fight or flight response, it's not a good time to have a baby. And if you're early on in pregnancy and your biology is saying it's not a good time to have a baby, you're going to be at a higher risk of loss because that elevated stress level is going to rip in that cervix way too quickly, right? If you're adding to that pattern, if you're stealing your progesterone, the placenta is producing progesterone, but survival is more important than reproduction. And if you need that to make cortisol in order to survive a stressful event, you're going to steal your progesterone. There's so many of these things, as with everything in functional medicine, that just kind of cascades and, you know, connecting dots. And if, you know, it's like if you give a mouse a cookie book and, <laughs> you know, if you have stress and we're stealing your progesterone, well, you have to have progesterone to upregulate the vitamin D receptors inside of the placenta. And then you have to have vitamin D attaching to those receptors to stimulate the production of progesterone. So we have this wonderful vicious cycle that now occurs. If we have that, we're more likely to have things like smaller placentas later on. And things like preeclampsia are more common in people who have low progesterone and low vitamin D. And so it becomes this cascade of events. And everything's connected. Yes, it is. That is the (laughs) mantra of the podcast. That is the mantra, right? (laughs) Everything is connected. So what about the microbiome? How do you talk to parents-to-be about the microbiome and how we support the biome during pregnancy in support of childbirth? So the microbiome is absolutely fascinating in pregnancy, and we see these really vast changes that occur throughout pregnancy in these different stages in the type of bacteria that are being produced and grown in the gut and kind of this lead up to labor and delivery in which a vaginal birth sets the new baby up for immune system success based off of the bacteria in which they are given. So in the first trimester, the gut is the same. 
It's the same as it was preconception. So if you come into pregnancy with kind of some dysbiosis, some issues there, you can see that it kind of lingers through that first trimester. We see that dysbiosis, H. pylori, these sorts of things increase the risk of hyperemesis and severe morning sickness, which then can lead to nutritional deficiencies and, you know, some other things down the road. People who have HG are more likely to have preeclampsia later simply because they didn't get enough of the vitamins and minerals they needed in the first trimester because they were sick. One of the things we see is that there is an increase in lactic acid-producing bacteria and a reduction in the butyrate-producing bacteria throughout pregnancy. By the third trimester, it's heavily lactobacilli-based. You'll see a high amount of lactobacillus and the bacteroid-type families of species. What's really interesting is you actually find those bacteria inside the amniotic fluids and in the endometrial tissue of the uterus itself. And these bacteria help to prevent things like excessive oxidative stress that is happening on a regular basis in your body as a pregnant person or our patients who are pregnant have to balance the high inflammatory state of pregnancy. And a lot of these higher levels of lactobacilli help to prevent that inflammation and infection and oxidative stress inside the uterus. And it's really interesting that you'll see people who have dysbiosis also are more likely to have things, again, like preterm labor. People who have BV, for example, have an increased rate of miscarriage and early pregnancy, pregnancy loss, as well as preterm labor. When I hear you talking about this, it brings me back to when you said we need to, and I, I'm not sure I'm going to get this right, Sarah, but you said we need to like step back and give the whole maternal response kind of a big hug, like really just be in service to that response. Do you have more patients who are pregnant coming to you with concern about their environmental inputs and toxins because of the increasing awareness of toxins crossing the placenta? Yeah, absolutely. It's something that we have definitely seen people being more aware of as they come into the office, knowing that they've had exposure to things now or having heavy metal testing prior to conception. And then just being worried that, you know, the world we live in in and of itself, like how toxic are we? And are these things that they're being exposed to, whether they know it or not, really affecting their baby? And it's really interesting that you do see these chemicals on both sides of the placenta. And the placenta tries really hard to protect your baby from these toxins, but certain ones do make it through the system. There's studies that talk about, and they, they biopsy placentas and they biopsy the blood in the umbilical cords and assess them for things like pesticides. And they are so full of pesticides. It's quite tragic. I've seen studies that talk about the amount of pesticides and chemicals found in newborns and just the amount of toxicity there. I know that some people really enjoy like consuming the placenta encapsulation form and things like that postpartum. And it's one of those things that I do kind of err on the side of caution with simply because we know that placenta accumulates all these environmental toxins and chemicals. And it's something that I feel there are pros and cons to. And it's something that I kind of talk with my patients on, provide them some studies. We talk about their diets and lifestyles and all of that. And then 
talk about, you know, symptomology and when they may want to take it because the benefits outweigh the risks. Right. Yeah. It's like eating liver may be good, but it depends on the animal it came from. And how. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's talk about everything, right? You know. Exactly. So before I let you go, Sarah, I need to bring us over to the right side of the matrix. And you've given us a lot of ideas already about how we support labor and delivery from a functional perspective. But looking at that right side of the matrix, if you were to speak into those areas, just kind of running down. Give us a little primer. Yeah. Ah, sleep and relaxation is a big one. Making a baby is a lot of work. (laughs) And there is a lot of natural oxidative stress that occurs. And sleep is really important, as we all know, to clean out that oxidative stress on a nightly basis. And so resting as much as patients can is really important. I definitely take their maternal sleep patterns pretty seriously. If it's affecting their life, we want to address it. If it's just kind of a little bit of a normal pregnancy insomnia, we may just say nap during the day, right? But it is something we do need to take a look at because if they're starting to get things like, you know, our classic adrenal sleep patterns, they may have a progesterone deficiency and they're not balancing all of the negative effects that we see with elevated cortisol levels. Exercise, we love movement, right? We see that exercise helps increase blood flow, helps to prevent things like preeclampsia. But on the other side, excessive exercise in pregnancy is something that I tend to frown upon. So love exercise. I'm a big fan of if you did it before pregnancy, go ahead and keep doing it. But some of, here are some of the things I've seen with exercise. Number one, exercise increases cortisol, right? If you're going for a run, you are eliciting a, a temporary fight or flight response right? And if your body is already in a hyper-stressed scenario, that may be causing more harm than good. And it may really wear people out and really overwork their adrenal glands in a time in their life when their adrenal glands are already working hard. So I'm a bigger fan of things like walking and hiking and yoga and Pilates and those sorts of exercises and movement kind of engagement versus things like jogging and running and some of those more intense type exercises. I've had definitely several patients throughout my time frame who were bodybuilders and CrossFit lovers and all that kind of stuff. And we don't take it away from them. (laughs) But one of the things I tend to recommend is as you get closer to labor and delivery, if you were preparing for a marathon, you wouldn't exercise up until the day of the race, right? You take a break. And that's when you need to take a break and you need to do things like "Eh, maybe some carb loading and, you know, some of those things that prepare you for a big event. You've done the training. It is a big event. It's a big event with a lot of energy expenditure. Absolutely. And and we see that, you know, that we have this thing we call the catecholamine surge, which is a, again, a 50% increase in norepinephrine and a 500% increase in adrenaline that happens during the actual labor and delivery, which is fascinating. So your body is going through a big event. So nutrition, hydration, we talked about protein, you talked about some of those micronutrients that we need. How do we wrap our head around preparing for delivery? Absolutely. So I actually have an ebook handout that's 100 pages on my website that's downloadable. People can go and it's my quote unquote patient's guide to preparing nutritionally for labor and delivery. And a lot of the nutrition that goes into this prep for labor, it's huge, right? Nutrition plays into every single one of the biochemical processes that prepares the body for labor and delivery. It's just something we don't talk about. When we talk about nutrition, we talk a lot about the prenatal nutrition. What does baby need? Like, let's let's balance our macros. Let's do that kind of stuff, which is great. We need large amounts of protein. We, you know, we typically recommend 60 to 100 grams of protein per day for our expectant mamas. 
But there's a lot of other nutrients. We see that the need for folate increases, the need for B12 increases twofold. We see that there is a sixfold increase in vitamin A receptors in the uterus in the third trimester. We see, you know, iron demand doubles, zinc demand doubles, like all these things you really are eating for two, just not calorically. So quality matters. It really does. And it almost matters more so in pregnancy. And we have this conversation all the time with patients. You know, it's not a time to, although I I did this myself, eat brownies every day, right? (laughs) I jokingly call my second baby the brownie baby because that's all I wanted to eat was brownies. And, you know, I I probably have a dozen trying to be healthy brownie recipes, like, oh, black bean brownies and zucchini brownies and all these things to to compensate for that. And we're not trying to take that away from people. It's just, you know, that 80-20 rule of making sure that everything else you're consuming is as nutrient dense as you can get it, right? Hydration is huge too, because you'll see one of the things we have to do in pregnancy is we have to filter amniotic fluid. And by peak amniotic fluid levels, which is usually right around 34 weeks, you can have anywhere from 800 to 1,000 milliliters of fluid in the amniotic environment. And an expectant mother has to filter that every three hours. Hydration is huge, not only because of a metabolic standpoint, because we need all these vitamins and minerals and fluid to make energy, but also because we're helping to support that environment for our baby as well. Mm, Sarah, so much goodness in all that you shared. And I'm excited to point people towards the ebook and towards your website. I love how you think into this and how you bring that deep physiological understanding to how we're supporting labor and delivery. Is there anything as a final question that you wish everybody knew in supporting people through childbirth that we're just getting wrong as a society? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I will say I have definitely seen some things wrong from other functional medicine practitioners who are working with pregnant clients, and they just don't understand the maternal physiology because it is so unique. And I would challenge anybody out there who is working with pregnant people or plans on working with pregnant people to really dive into and understand these different changes in maternal physiology because they are vastly different to anything we learned in probably most of our functional medicine courses. Things like, you know, copper levels rising in pregnancy. There's lab work changes that happen, right? So what would be considered normal or what would be considered dangerous outside of pregnancy is 100% normal in pregnancy. One of those big ones is things like alkaline phosphatase levels. Those double in pregnancy. And people look at that and they're like, oh my God, your liver's on fire. And it's like, well, no, that's actually normal. That's, that's what it's supposed to look like. There's a lack of education in the support of maternal physiology. There's a lack of education in the support of pregnancy in functional medicine. And again, if you're planning on working on with pregnant patients, it's very important to get outside of the wheelhouse of probably what you were taught in your functional medicine training and to dive a little deeper into that maternal physiology and how it changes. This is so beautiful, Sarah. Thank you for bringing our attention to the maternal physiology and how we can support it. I had so much fun talking with you and look forward to diving into more of your materials myself. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. 
The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. And special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our full body systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.